Today, we will talk about why the Democrats' impeachment effort is a gift to Donald Trump and will fan the flames of Trumpism in America. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We really appreciate all of your support and encourage all of you who are listening and enjoying the show to become a patron today. Again, that's at patreon.com slash the socialist program. I'm Nicole Roussel, and I'm here with our host, Brian Becker. Brian, this week, uh, 45 Republican senators voted uh, for a resolution that said impeaching Donald Trump as a private citizen would be unconstitutional. And you've been saying from the beginning, we've been talking about this here on the show, um, that the second impeachment of Donald Trump was, I believe your exact words were, a tactical blunder. That seems to be playing out exactly that way. Is that how you see it? Still see it as a major tactical blunder. The... Democrats are, in fact, giving Donald Trump a gift. What does impeachment actually mean? It means that the Senate convicts after it's been, after it's received articles of impeachment from the democratically controlled House of Representatives, it could convict Donald Trump, forcing him to leave office. The only issue is he's not in office. He left office at 1201 January 12.01 p.m., January 20th, everybody knew he was leaving. So what exactly is the purpose of impeaching Donald Trump to force him out of office after he's gone? This is an empty, ridiculous, but you know, predictable, uh, hapless effort on the part of the hapless Democratic Party. Of course, the Democratic Party is like the Republican Party, a ruling class party. It's an imperialist party. It shares the same foreign policy objectives of the Republican Party. Uh, The Biden administration's incoming team have made it abundantly clear that they're on the same team with Marco Rubio and Elliot Abrams when it comes to Venezuela. They're on the same team when it comes to China. Uh, Biden went out of his way to invite the president of Taiwan, to come to the inauguration, signaling China that, in fact, Biden doesn't recognize that Taiwan is part of China, which was the premise, the foundation for U.S.-China relations starting back in the 1970s. Biden has promised to send more arms to Taiwan that's designed to provoke a crisis with China. And in so many other ways, we can see that Biden's foreign policy will be, for the most part, uh, a representation of continuity, not change from, from Trump. But that said, Nicole, the Democrats' posture as a party that speaks to the needs of the people, speaks to the needs of the working class and poor, uh, that it has a sensitivity to black and brown communities, that it's interested in women's rights instead of 
trying to find every possible moment to to snuff out women's rights. I mean, so the Democrats are attempting to at least posture as a progressive alternative to the Republicans or certainly to Trump. But does impeachment in the face of and after the January 6th, a fascist-led assault instigated by Donald Trump that dispersed Congress, made the Congress people flee for their lives, had the impact of uh, temporarily at least preventing the certification of the uh, November election, does impeachment or is impeachment the way that the Democrats should hold Donald Trump to account? What they're doing is making Trump appear to be, again, even after he's gone, the focus of attention. That's number one. He's the focus of attention so that he can rally the Republican Party again around him, who can claim and the, um, and the Republican Party can claim that this, because it has no real consequences, is simply theater designed to demonize Donald Trump. Uh, it allows Donald Trump to stay front and center. And in fact, all around the country right now, Trump supporters who are set back after the debacle on January 6th at the Congress, they're now rallying behind Donald Trump. I mean, it shows how weak the, the Democratic Party is, including its liberal wing, the liberal wing uh, led by uh, the squad in Congress. And we don't normally try to criticize people uh, who are you know, progressive. But why impeachment? I mean, the U.S. government has laws on the book. The seditious conspiracy law is on the book. Seditious conspiracy says very plainly, if two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to, by force, to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Now, when you send a mob towards capital, towards the capital, when you tell them to fight like hell, when you know that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters are bringing guns and other weapons to Washington, D.C., when you know that they're planning when they arrive at the Capitol to breach the Capitol, when you know all of those things, and we know all of those things now, everyone knows them to be true, uh, you can make the case clearly that this was a planned attack against the Congress of the United States to hinder or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law, in, the, in this case, the lawful certification of the election outcome. Uh, instead of impeaching Donald Trump, that only makes him a martyr and puts him on a pedestal, but doesn't impose any consequences on him, why don't the Democrats in Congress demand that Donald Trump be arrested for seditious conspiracy or all of the others who facilitated the January 6th attack? I mean, there were obviously co-conspirators. It's not just the people who spoke on the stage. Who were the forces in the Department of Defense, Trump appointees who refused to uh, provide reinforcements for the Capitol? Who are the forces perhaps within the Capitol Police? or the U.S. House Sergeant of Arms, uh, forces that 
either downplayed, minimized, or completely denied the threat that was posed to the Capitol, uh, even though everyone knew that there was a threat to the Capitol and that people were coming to breach the Capitol. Again, seditious conspiracy, yes, Donald Trump would still be a martyr for his supporters, but that would be an impact on him. He would be facing 20 years in prison, but impeachment, no. This is a gift to Donald Trump, and it shows again how hapless and weak the, the Democrats are if they at least want to, as they say they do, posture against Donald Trump. I mean, it's as ridiculous or maybe even more ridiculous than the last impeachment trial. Uh, again, why don't you impeach Donald Trump for killing Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general who he executed when Soleimani arrived at Baghdad airport at the invitation of the Iraqi government after it consulted with the Trump administration to engage in peace talks? Now, that was a criminal act. You could impeach him for that. You could impeach him for unilaterally sending missiles into Syria, which he did in 2017. But no, the Democrats and their supporters said that's when Donald Trump was acting presidential for the first time. There's lots of things you could have impeached Donald Trump for, but they impeached him because he was on a conference call, listened into, and everyone knew it was being listened into by maybe 25 or 50 other people. And he tried to twist the arm of the Ukrainian president so that the Ukrainian president would uh, in investigate Hunter Biden's corruption in Ukraine. And he then held up for two or three weeks, sending advanced weapons to Ukraine's government, weapons that, by the way, Barack Obama refused to send because he thought they were too provocative. Uh, you know, that impeachment was, again, ridiculous. It made the, the Republicans be able to take the case to the Trump voters. He is being demonized uh, and attacked and victimized by Democratic Party elites. And my last little piece on this, Nicole, is the Democrats had to know that the Republican Party under these circumstances, where Donald Trump is the most popular politician in the Republican Party, that the Republican uh, senators are not going to break ranks and convict Donald Trump. So you go through this whole exercise, and at the end of the day, not only do you keep Donald Trump on a pedestal, not only do you allow Donald Trump to appeal to his base, but at the end of the day, he will be found not guilty in the Senate. So Donald Trump can come back to that same base and say, as he said after the first impeachment trial, see, this was politically motivated. I was acquitted. Again, this shows how weak and hapless the Democrats are. They're always finding the weakest way to oppose the right. They're ineffectual in terms of fighting the right. If you want to really disrupt Trump's base, uh, there are a number of things you can do. In addition to arresting him, because he's clearly, you know, there's probable cause for seditious conspiracy, why not pass a far-reaching economic program that would prevent evictions, that would keep people in their homes, that would give people not $2,000 or $1,400 or $600 in a one-time check, but $2,000 to every family in need until the end of the pandemic. I mean, this would be something meaningful. But instead of that, you can see that the Democrats in Congress are wasting all of their time squandering their momentum at a time when they control the House and they control the Senate and the White House 
and they could do whatever it is they want to do. They're squandering their time fighting about impeachment, uh, something without consequences. They're, they're having little battles with Mitch McConnell about whether a Republican or a Democrat is going to be the chairperson of this or that Senate committee. And now we see they're whittling down their own program, their own economic re- relief program. Biden, during the Georgia uh, special election, said, I'm going to give $2,000 to every family. And then after the election, he said, well, actually, I mean 1400 And now the Democrats are negotiating against themselves and agreeing with Mitch McConnell that, yes, it was fine for the economy to give $5.5 trillion to, to hedge funds and equity firms and banks and corporations uh, during the first nine months. That was fine for the economy, but let's never give $2,000 even one time, much less every month, to working class families because that would financially bankrupt America. The Democrats, again, uh, instead of uh, fighting the Republicans and using their majority in the House and the Senate to push this through, they're in the name of bipartisanship, uh, negotiating against themselves and adopting a right wing program. Again, this will strengthen Donald Trump and Trumpism in America. Brian, let's go back to January 6th, because this is, of course, where all of this, um, you know, these political issues, the possible impeachment coming up. That's where all of this is coming from. Let's let's talk about a couple of new, really important um, factors and facts and puzzle pieces that have come in this week. Let's talk about some of these. So one of them, um, we're now finding out that the Pentagon actually restricted the commander of the D.C. National Guard, Major General William J. Walker, actually restricted his authority ahead of the the assault on the Capitol. At that point, the Pentagon required a higher level sign off than usual for the D.C. National Guard to be able to deploy. So that's factor one. Um, We are also finding out this week um, that the Proud Boys leader, Enrique Tarrio, um, was apparently, according to Reuters, this exclusive report, a a quote unquote prolific informer for the FBI, for law enforcement. Um, This is huge, huge news and says a lot, I think, about the organization of the Proud Boys and relatedly, um, a high ranking FBI agent has also told reporters, um, and this this was in the past, this happened a couple of years ago, but I think is still very relevant because this is the time in which Tario was um, informing on the Proud Boys and was getting people arrested, Uh, a high ranking FBI agent said, we actually made a mistake and should not have ranked the Proud Boys as an extremist group. They're not an extremist group, which on the face of it is completely bogus. I mean, of course, they're an extremist group. They just helped organize this assault on the Capitol riot and for years have been assaulting uh, individuals, have been, uh, you know, completely, completely radical, right wing radical um, in fascist. Their... Fascist. Fascist. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's fascist. the exact word you are, that I The want. word you are looking for was fascist. I think you're right. So there's all these components. And then the last component that I'll have you address um, is the fact that the FBI is now investigating more and more the role of the Proud Boys and other groups like the Oath Keepers in the Capitol assault. And it's only increasing the more they look into it, at least what they're they're telling us. So we knew that I believe it was Joseph Biggs. Joseph Biggs was the leader of about 100 people who, um, uh, not people, rather, the, the Proud Boys who marched into the Capitol building 
Um, we knew that fairly early on, but now there's even more organizers from the the Proud Boys that the FBI is announcing charges on and is um, raiding their houses. So clearly the involvement of these groups is actually far greater than we we knew early on. So all of these all of these puzzle pieces are, I think, really important in figuring out what happened and, you know, really paving a uh, an understanding that we can have of whether the fascist movement is getting stronger, getting weaker, what's going to happen with Trump moving forward. So if you could address those components. Um, let's let's talk about those things. Yeah, well, let's let's start with the the issue of the Proud Boys. Now, Henry Tario, uh, according to this latest report that came out January 27th, Proud Boy Proud Boys leader Henry Enrique in quotes, Tario was once a prolific cooperator with the FBI and local enforcement in South Florida, according to court records from a 2012 fraud case in which he pleaded guilty to helping sell stolen goods. Now, uh, you said, well, he was a confidential informant arresting Proud Boys and others. Not necessarily. Uh, the co- The confidential informant issue with the FBI in right-wing extremist and fascist organizations has a long history. Um, and in many cases, the FBI confidential informants, and this also goes for the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF agency in the federal government, who also had uh, confidential informants and undercover informants inside of right-wing fascist organizations like the KKK and the Nazis, they weren't really arresting fascists. They were, in fact, working with these fascist organizations. They called them confidential informants because they were working on behalf of or in concert with federal law enforcement like FBI. But in most cases, when you look back at when the Klan, for instance, organized targeted assassinations of people, a lot of times the organizers of those assassinations, and you can go back and look at maybe 15 or 20 assassinations of civil rights organizers and leaders in the 1960s and and even in the 1970s. And it turns out the confidential informant people were not trying to harm the Klan. They were working with the Klan. And then the Klan or, or the FBI then later justified the fact that they were militant leaders of the Klan by saying, well, if they didn't look like militant leaders, people wouldn't trust them. So the only way they could really, you know, get the trust of the Klan was to be militant organizers, including organizers of assassinations. So for instance, in November 1979, there was the Greensboro Massacre, um, the, a group called the Communist Workers Party, who were very active in the labor movement and the black civil rights movement in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were holding an anti-Klan rally at a predominantly African-American housing complex in the city of Greensboro. Two carloads of Klansmen drove up, nonchalantly got out of their car, opened the trunk of their car, and started shooting them. And five members of the Communist Workers Party uh, were assassinated. And the people were shot, some of them in between, like between the eyes, uh, directly in the head. It looked like the the shooters knew who they were trying to shoot. And, and most of the people killed and the people shot who were not killed were leaders of that group. Now, 
there was a trial later of these people. Now, the cops disappeared. The Greensboro police disappeared right before the two-car convoy shows up and the Klansmen get out of their car and start killing people. They, the Greensboro police disappear, but it's all caught on video. And eventually there's a trial. There are two trials. And in both cases, the juries in North Carolina acquitted the killers. And in both cases, it turns out that the organizer of the massacre were the agents, the two agents, one from the FBI and one from the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency. So when we think about uh, the leader of the Proud Boys being an informant, it doesn't mean that the FBI, that they're necessarily hostile to the Proud Boys. And that's why I think it's extremely important now that we know this new information that Tario was an FBI confidential informant, to go back to that article that you cited in 2018, December 7th, 2018, I'm looking at the Washington Post. The FBI says the Proud Boys are not an extremist group after all. A high-ranking FBI agent told reporters that the Western chauvinist group Proud Boys, that's how the Times, they don't even put quotes around that, which has made headlines for its part in violent clashes in Portland, Oregon, and New York, is not considered an extremist group contradicting a report from the Washington State Sheriff's Office that circulated in November. According to Oregonian, special agent in charge Charles Wren Cannon said during a discussion with the Portland area journalist that the FBI had not intended to designate the group as an extremist during a slideshow with the Clark County Sheriff's Office. The office later released a report that said the FBI considers the group to have ties to white nationalism. The FBI says it assesses threats and investigates individuals with potential to cause violence, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, doesn't it make sense now why the FBI said, oh, no, they're not an extremist group. Yes, they have ties to the Klan or ties to white supremacist organizations like the Klan. But that doesn't mean they're an extremist group. Uh, Anyway, everybody, the KKK was formed when the slaveocracy lost the Civil War in 1865. It was designed as a terror organization. It was terrorism. It was American terrorism. It was the lynch mob. It was the lynchings. Not only were thousands, literally thousands and thousands of black people lynched, between 1865 and 1935, but there were tens of thousands of other near lynchings where people were threatened with lynchings, and lynchings were organized by these fascist mobs as an auxiliary to the sheriff's department. And those lynch mob parties were designed to terrorize black people. I mean, every every white supremacist organization in America that has its genesis in this history has to be understood both as an extremist group, but also as a terrorist group. And it's no surprise at all that they're working with the FBI and other law enforcement because the law enforcement agencies in the United States, whether it was under J. Edgar Hoover uh, with the FBI or the local sheriff's departments, they have always worked hand in hand with the Klan. Matter of fact, our chant when the Klan had its resurgence in the during the 1980s when 
Ronald Reagan came into office. Uh, our, our chant was, cops and the Klan work hand in hand. And that goes for the FBI too. And of course, Ronald Reagan, uh, weirdly, might one might say, started his 1980 election campaign. Where? Was it in Washington or Chicago or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? No, it was started in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's a little town. The only reason anybody even knows about Philadelphia, Mississippi, it's where it's where the three civil rights workers were executed, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. They were killed. They were killed when they were trying to engage in voter registration campaign for black people in Mississippi in 1964. And Reagan went there and he said, the South will rise again. That's how he started his 1980 election campaign, by going to that place. And so at that time, there was a resurgence of the Klan and other fascist groups, just as there are now uh, with Donald Trump, who is also encouraging and sending clear messages to the Proud Boys and others, as he did during the presidential debate when, when he was asked to renounce white supremacists. He said, well, uh, Proud Boys stand up and stand by or stand down and stand by, something like that, which was basically a recruiting message and a show of support. So you have the cops and the Klan working hand in hand, the cops and the fascists working hand in hand. You have the, the, the parts of the political establishment throughout the history of this country have been working with them. Ronald Reagan was messaging with them. Donald Trump is working with them. I mean, now, Nicole, some of the Proud Boys are denouncing Donald Trump as a traitor because after uh, after the January 6th debacle, when Donald Trump was trying to save his own skin, he went on TV and said, those who carried out the attack should be held account. Uh, they should be arrested. Then the, the fascists who were all about Donald Trump now consider Trump a traitor. But that said, Donald Trump has helped them grow. He's legitimized the growth of the fascist movement. The fascist movement needs a leader. Without a leader, the many, many armed militias and fascist organizations will fragment. Uh, Donald Trump is their leader. And again, I think the Democrats, by taking action against Trump that's basically purely symbolic and not decisive and not doing anything economically helpful to those parts of Trump's base that are not fascist, but are working class or poor people or middle class people who are hurting in America. Again, we see once more that the rise of fascism in America, the growth of the fascist menace, is part and parcel of the police state, and it's part and parcel or really an outcome derived from the failure of bourgeois liberalism uh, to do that which is necessary to fight against, in a meaningful way, the development of far-right forces. Brian, that was really interesting. A, a lot of that um, I think a lot of people don't know, and and I, and I didn't know a lot of it. I think it's really important to think about when we see this kind of news. So thank you for going through that. Um, you let's go back to, however, the the one news piece that has come out this week about the Pentagon restricting the DC Guard ahead of the Capitol assault because you know we heard early on from the head of the Capitol Police or now the former head of the Capitol Police. Um, Sund, who talked about how he was in similar similar ways restricted from being able to plan as he normally would. Um, what what does this new news show us about January six? Yeah, this is extremely important. I think um, 
a Major General William J. Walker. He is the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard. He's been testifying this week behind closed doors in Congress about what happened on January 6th and what happened beforehand. I'll read a few sentences to you from a January 26th dispatch from, it's in the Washington Post. The commander of the D.C. National Guard said the Pentagon restricted his authority ahead of the riot at the U.S. Capitol, requiring higher level sign-off to respond that cost time as the events that day spiraled out of control. Local commanders typically have the power to take military action on their own to save lives or to prevent significant property damage in an urgent situation when there isn't enough time to obtain approval from headquarters. But Major General William J. Walker, the commanding general of the District of Columbia National Guard, said the Pentagon essentially took that power and other authorities away from him ahead of the short-lived insurrection on January 6th. That meant he could not immediately roll out troops when he received a panic call from the Capitol Police Chief warning that the rioters were about to enter the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Again, this is pretty important. There were six different requests uh, by Capitol Police and from the DC, the leadership of the DC National Guard, including Major General William Walker, to the Pentagon the day before and the day of the January 6th assault, asking, pleading for reinforcements or authorization to deploy forces. And in each time, under the bogus explanation that they didn't like the optics, that the Pentagon did not like the optics of military forces at the National Guard, they were not approved. Then later, the Pentagon said, oh, we didn't deny the request. We just didn't approve them. I mean, again, talk about double talk. Uh, Again, the, the Pentagon is now saying, because there was so much adverse reaction to the use of National Guard against Black Lives Matter protesters back in spring, in, the, in Washington, D.C., they were now having to be real, real careful about deploying forces. Well, that's bogus, everybody. The fact of the matter is, if the progressive movement, if the anti-racist movement, if the answer coalition, if the Black Lives Matter movement had stormed the Capitol, if police officers were dying and others were being injured, if the Congress was being dispersed in real time, do you think the, the, the Pentagon would say, mm, sorry, we just don't like the optics of having National Guard troops down by the Capitol? Well, what about the optics of the Capitol being overrun? What about the optics of members of Congress hiding under their desks or being uh, sent to uh, secure areas? What about the optics of a crowd going through the Capitol building saying, find Pence, find Pence, hang Pence, hang Pence, and Pence being rushed out of the Capitol just minutes before they caught him. And if they had caught him, they would have killed him. Uh, I mean, what about the optics there? Is it credible that the optics of having National Guard reinforcement would have been worse in any imaginable way than the optics of what happened? That's not credible. And again, it points to the fact that there was collusion between the Republican Party leadership, between the Trump administration, Trump himself, his close advisors, the people who organized that 
march, which was sometimes called March for America or March to Save America or March for Trump, and was going to march on the Capitol at the moment the the Congress at the Capitol was going to certify that Trump lost the election. I mean, uh, the reason the the Capitol was not protected, the reason reinforcements were not sent was not because of optics. It wasn't simply bungling, even though you can never underestimate the incompetency of different um, uh, law enforcement or government agencies. There was obviously collusion. Why did Trump fire Mark Esper three days after the election? Esper had had broken with Trump about sending military forces against the American people when they were protesting following the George Floyd killing. Uh, He then appointed Christopher Miller, who was like a mid-level Pentagon person to be the acting defense secretary. Miller owed his position to Trump. I mean, it was he who was in charge of the Pentagon that day. It was he who and his uh, associates who did not send reinforcements. By the way, Mike Flynn's brother, uh, who was also a general and was also in on those conference calls, uh, was part of the conference calls where uh, additional reinforcements weren't sent. The day before, Michael Flynn had called on Trump to declare martial law. I mean, everybody could tell that there was a struggle brewing. Why else would the 10 living secretaries of defense, as we've stated over and over again, why would they have issued that extraordinary uh, op-ed statement on January 3rd, warning Miller that he would be criminally prosecuted if he allowed the military to be used to intervene to impact or overturn the uh, the election outcome. The only reason they would have done that is because they were aware that it might happen. And then when the crowd, the mob, using violent methods, dispersed Congress for the defense secretary to still say, or for the, the uh, numerous officials in the Department of Defense under the Secretary of Defense to say, oh, we don't like the optics. No, that's not credible. What we can see is collusion between parts of the police, parts of the military, and the Trump campaign, not the campaign, the Trump White House, uh, to carry out this assault. Trump was desperate. It was a gamble. Uh, He hadn't obviously thought through step three and four, but the people fighting at the Congress, they thought this was the storm. They thought this was, you know, the rapture. They thought this was the moment when they were actually going to stop the steal. They were going to stop the fraud. They were going to save America and save democracy. And they were waiting, waiting, waiting for their leader, none other than Donald J. Trump, to show up, in which case they would have made their final move. And, you know, we know that 45% of Trump voters would have been perfectly happy with that outcome, even if it meant circumventing uh, constitutional processes. So the threat was there, the threat was real, and the failure to act to meet the threat is inexplicable except for the explanation of collusion. And what does that mean, Brian, in our last few minutes? uh, What does that mean for the fascist movement going forward? Trump has disavowed them, um, and many, uh, many in the fascist movements have disavowed Trump, but that isn't necessarily the way it will stay. So what do you see in terms of, is the fascist movement gonna get stronger they going to weaken because they won't have as strong of a leader? Will Trump get stronger? Or will he get weaker? What do you see moving forward? Well, we don't have a crystal ball, but we get do know- Get out your crystal ball, Brian. It's time. 
Okay, I'm going to get out my crystal ball. I actually don't believe in that, Nicole. But my point is this. <laughs> we don't know with certainty, of course, what's going to happen next. I mean, there's too many variables. But we do know that Trump was at his low ebb right after January 6th. He lost his Twitter account. Uh, we're not advocating for high-tech companies to be the censoring uh, instruments in society. They're mainly censoring leftists and progressives. But the fact of the matter is that Trump was using Twitter to incite and bring together this very right-wing movement that attempted to disperse Congress. When he lost that capacity, that was a big setback for him. His loss of Twitter hurt him and hurt his ability to communicate with this right-wing movement that has uh, galvanized around Trump. Yes, uh, he was he was weak and and on his, you know, on his heels and that's why he went on TV and supported the FBI going after the people who carried out a violent attack on the Capitol. That's when the fascists felt that he had betrayed them, which of course in a way he had. Uh, he was at a low point. Uh, he was also the big banks, Deutsche Bank, Signature Bank, the banks that had been his you know, lifeline lending him, in the case of Deutsche Bank, more than $2 billion when he was bankrupt, which he was three different times, losing lending from them. That's going to hurt the Trump businesses. Corporations were breaking ties with him. Universities that gave him honorary degrees were taking them back. I mean, Trump seemed isolated. Trump is coming out of isolation thanks to the Democrats' impeachment effort, again, allowing Trump to go to, to remain the center of attention without facing any dire consequences. And I think this will help strengthen uh, the right-wing movement, certainly Trump and Trumpism. It'll prevent the Democrats from making any dent in the Trump base. What happens to the fascist movement is a little bit more complicated to say. Right now, the FBI is going after the fascist movement. The U.S. government is happy to use fascists. They, you know, basically use fascists all around the world to target uh, other countries for regime change. That's certainly what happened in 2014 when Victoria Nuland and John McCain, in a bipartisan effort, uh, supported, you know, embraced fascist forces who carried out the armed insurrection that toppled the Yanukovych government in Ukraine and allowed the United States to then envision the possibility of having a U.S. puppet in Ukraine, what had been the Soviet Union's second largest republic after Russia. The U.S. uses fascists and fascist and far-right forces like Juan Guaido. They do that internationally. Um, but, you know, the, the, in, at home, the U.S. capitalist class gets a big benefit out of not having a fascist overall generalized form of governance, because this way, when people uh, have are angry, they, they want to be opposed to the government. Every four years, there's an election. So when we were all hating George W. Bush for the Iraq war, the genocidal war in Iraq that took a million Iraqi lives, uh, if we had been told at that time, hey, George W. Bush is going to be president for life, and this is a fascist or fascist-like government, you know, armed struggle groups would have formed in the United States. But instead of that, by having bourgeois democracy and using the system of having carefully vetted politicians who are loyal to the system and loyal to the empire above all else, 
the energy of the people was channeled into a harmless channel. I mean, it was it was channeled to the election of a new president. So it was going to be either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or John Edwards. And millions of people were passionately involved to see who the next Democratic candidate would be and how they could take the White House back from the Republicans. That's a better, more secure form of class rule when you have the oppressed classes feeling that there's variety and choice that they get to elect people who, you know, in essence, will oppress them for the next four years. But because it's done by consent rather than at the end of a bayonet, uh, it's a lot less tense. It's a lot less socially tense. It's a more stable form of government. And I think right now, after January 6th, the capitalist state and different parts of the capitalist establishment are trying to clip the wings of a growing fascist movement uh, whose actions on January 6th uh, made America look weak internationally and also uh, constituted a threat to you know, core elements of democracy. So I think in terms of what actually happens to the fascist movement, it depends a little bit on how fierce the repression is against them and whether or not they have a central leader like Donald Trump. Uh, to be able to want to to give them legitimacy and direction, uh, absent absent a leader, uh, I think the fascist movement won't go away. There's lots of armed right wing fascist like militias, but I think it will fragment. So again, Nicole, we don't have a crystal ball, but I can say this with certainty: that what needs to happen is not for the movement to rely on the FBI to go after the fascists, not to rely on the Democrats to do the right thing. We need to build a massive movement of working people, of young people, demanding things that people need right now, affordable health care, affordable housing. They need to be able to go to school without being, you know, beleaguered by staggering levels of debt. The hungry need food. We have to build a mass militant And I would say socialist movement or certainly a socialist led movement for social change against capitalism and all of its manifestations of oppression, inequality and poverty. Uh, If I had my crystal ball and, and said what's coming, I would say that's what's coming. But of course, it won't come by itself. It's a movement that all of us must build. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.